Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now it's that fullness of time that we mark our calendars every year, this time of the year, to celebrate. It's that fullness of time that we celebrate this time of year. So think about this just a minute. That verse that I just read to you, it carries this idea of time being pregnant with expectation during that time that we celebrate the Father's sending of the Son. We call it Christmas. This verse also tells us something. It tells us that Jesus came when time was full and complete. The idea that has to carry us this season and every season is to understand that nothing was left undone that needed to be done before God sent the Son. In other words, He came right on you think about that for just a minute because that may rub a little bit of our expectation in one way this was 2,000 years ago and we can say that Christ came back then according to God's plan that was right on time see here's the truth this morning his coming had been what the whole world has been longing for and anticipating ever since the very beginning So that begs a question, if this is what the world has been longing for and anticipating, we should pause just for a moment in our reflection to remember how grateful we are to have a record of the events of those days. You see, what happened out there in Bethlehem, we know about. God has ensured that we have a record of it. We don't have to imagine what the world would have been like without a Christmas. This message of Christ's coming has reached everywhere. I remember one of my favorite times, well, memory-wise, that I spent Christmas was over in Bethlehem a few years ago. I had the privilege of going, and guess what? They had the Church of the Holy Nativity all adorned in Christmas lights. It was beautiful, even after December 25th, because different churches celebrate it different times. Anyway, that's another discussion. But we know what happened that night when, you know, the poor shepherds were keeping their flocks, and uh, all of these things that we sing about and celebrate. We know what happened that night because men were moved by the Holy Spirit to record it in Scripture for us. So never neglect the fact, don't take it for granted when you read the Christmas story to your children or grandchildren. Maybe you've heard it a thousand different times, but just pause just for a moment and remember, we're blessed. Blessed to be able to have a record of events, to know what happened on the backside of nowhere in a little bitty place called Bethlehem, which was least among every other place. That message has reached us today because men were moved by the Holy Spirit because God told us. No wonder we celebrate this time of the year with so much fanfare. You know what this time of the year is? This time of the year is the time the world began to begin again. 
That's what we celebrate. Now, we're beginning a new series here at Oxford. And what I want to do is I want us to look at some of the details that the Bible highlights as important to us. And really just one thing that the Bible highlights as important to us, that is the temple. The temple is a significant and permanent feature in the Bible. And so I think that if that's a significant and permanent feature, then you and I, we need to understand what the temple is. For example, to just think about how significant the temple is, consider the life of Jesus just for a minute. If we were to go to the first days of Jesus, we would see him in the temple. And then we fast forward all the way to the final days of Jesus, where do we find him? He's in the temple or around the temple. So what I want us to do is I want us to explore together over the course of the next few weeks here at Oxford the significance of the temple and the life of Jesus. I want us to celebrate this Christmas at the temple. Now each gospel, there's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them make a big deal, a huge deal about the temple. But there's one gospel writer who chooses to organize his entire narrative around the temple. And that's Luke. That's that passage that we read every year, right, to our kids. It gives the most significant picture of the life of Jesus in his early days. But if you were to go, and you, don't, you may can do this today if you have time, if you were to go and open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke just in the very beginning, you would see automatically we start in the temple with John the Baptist's daddy, Zechariah. And then quickly from there, we leave the temple and go to a city of David called Bethlehem. And we meet some shepherds and angels, and then we see the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, and then look where we go next. We're quickly back into the temple. And Luke, as a matter of fact, Luke gives us the only glimpse of Jesus any other time between the cradle and heading to the cross. And that's when Jesus is a young boy. And guess where Luke puts Jesus? In the temple. And then we come to the end of Luke's gospel. If you were to flip all the way to the end of Luke, Jesus spends his final hours in and around the temple. So here's the question that we get to look at over the next few weeks. What is Luke doing here by bracketing his entire gospel with the temple? I want us to explore that because I believe that Luke wrote his gospel with purpose. I believe that Luke had an intention. He's not just telling us, you know, Jesus had eggs for breakfast one day and then he went out and cast four demons out all before lunch. We're not, that's not what Luke's doing. Luke is telling his story. He's telling true events of the life of Jesus, but he's picking and choosing which events he wants to tell us. And then he's, he's arranging them in a certain way to give us a picture of Jesus. And so what Luke does is he starts in the temple and then he ends in the temple. And then in between we have this, uh, this only occurrence where we see Jesus as a young boy and he's in the temple. And so I want us to answer that question. Jesus and the temple. What's the significance of Jesus and the temple? What's the significance of Christmas and the temple? And so over the next course of the next seven weeks as we're going to be looking at this, I want you to have that in the back of your minds. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my diligence as your pastor to, to keep that before you as we go through this. But I want you to have that in the back of your minds as we explore these things. 
Here's the reason. The most significant life in the history of the world, Jesus, determined to have his life played out in the shadow of the temple. We need to know why. If we're going to understand his life, then we have to understand the temple. So what I want to do is I want to break this series up into seven parts. And so each one of these uh, parts will make sense as we put the flesh on the bones. And like I said, this year the whole purpose is for us to think about having Christmas at the temple. As always, as your pastor and my commitment to you, is not just stand up here and uh, listen to my, uh, the sound of my voice, and I've not liked it lately. You can hear the nasally. Forgive me, please. But anyway, the purpose is not just for me to say some things. The purpose is for you'll learn so that we'll learn together to better appreciate and understand the Bible, but not just so we'll have head knowledge, so that our hearts will be filled with awe and wonder as we learn to treasure Christ, this God, who has moved heaven and earth to make himself known to us. So let me ask you a question. So when you hear the phrase temple, what do you normally think of? Maybe you think about some big block building. Maybe you think about uh, a bunch of gold. Maybe you think about uh, a big curtain separating the Holy of Holies. Maybe you see in your mind the fire of the altar over the basin with the water in it, the sea. Maybe you think about the, the pomegranates. Maybe you think about the angels with their wings touching over the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe you think about all of these things, the, the beautiful wood lay and all the rest that the Bible describes of the temple. But the vestures of the temple are one thing. But all of those things are props to support the main thing. And what's the main significance of the temple? The major Significance of the temple is what it points to, and that is the presence of God. The temple, it was there to remind everyone of the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Not just any God, but the God, Yahweh. We need to ask ourselves a question. How can a block building filled with gold and treasures and all the rest How can that remind us about the Lord? Because the Lord, remember, he's the invisible God who forbids images. If the temple is to remind us of the Lord, then it surely doesn't remind us of his form. So then what is the purpose of the temple? And how does it remind us of the Lord? And though every part of the temple is significant, there's one place in the temple. And there's three sections. There's the outer court. There's the inner court, and I'll go through this with you all later. There's the outer court, the inner court, and then in the inner court, there's a room. The Holy of Holies. Where the manifest presence of God came to rest. Now think about that for just a moment. Out of all the other temples on the landscape of the earth, and there's There's still today thousands of temples everywhere. And even back then, there were probably more temples than there are today to this God, the God of the moon, the God of the sun, uh, the God of the river, the God of whatever. All these temples, but out of all the other temples dotting the landscape of the earth, the Shekinah glory of God manifested 
at a particular point in time, at a particular place on the earth, in a structure built according to dimensions that God declared and to a people that he chose. Do these terms, particular point, particular place, in a structure built according to dimensions that God declared to a people that he chose. Does that sound familiar to anyone else? Has God ever done anything like that significant at a particular point in time where he actually did something? Turn with me to Genesis. Take your Bible today, and I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And if we're going to understand the temple, I want to start by showing you what the temple is intended to portray. And I want you to listen real close to me because this, what I'm fixing to say, and hopefully you're taking notes, what I'm fixing to say is going to revolutionize your thinking. What I'm fixing to say has the potential. Now it's up to you and the, and the Lord how it sears to your heart. But what I'm fixing to say has the potential of revolutionizing the way you read the Bible and the way that you think. Listen carefully. Here it is. The temple is intended to represent all of creation. Or if you want to put it in more specific language, more analytical, we could say the temple is a microcosm of the cosmos. The temple is a little picture of the larger creation. That's what the temple is. Now what you say, what my sister-in-law said to me this weekend as I was talking this out through my family, you say, well, was, was there really a temple? Sure, there was really a temple. Uh, what's the significance of the temple? Not to be anything of itself. The temple was there to point people to something beyond itself. The temple was there to point people to God. And so the temple is intended to represent all of creation. Now, I want to stop right there for just a moment. Is this the way that you normally think about the temple? The temple as something that represents the whole of creation. Is this what you really think? What is creation? Creation is that, listen, point in time when God determined to do something that he'd never done before, and that is create and cause everything to come into existence. He did this at a particular place right here in the middle of the Milky Way galaxy. According to certain dimensions, he told the ocean, you can only come this far. He told Mount Everest, you're going to be the tallest mountain on the earth. He told the Dead Sea, you're going to be the lowest place on the earth. And then he told what he had done to a certain people that he chose. Out of all the people in the world, the people of God, the Israelites, the Jews, you and me, we are the caretakers of this message. Now listen. This is not just a Bible book for us and for our children. What we're fixing to read in Genesis is the true story of the whole world. Now the temple then, how does that fit? We're going to get into it later, but the temple, listen, just for now, the temple is a picture of creation. And creation is a picture of the work of God on our behalf. God, the Bible tells us, is a benevolent 
creator. You and I, we are creatures, his creatures, who have everything to benefit from his benevolence. So, listen. Before the temple, there's a beginning. And at the beginning, there's nothing except what is. And what's there before the beginning? God in all of his fullness. And from that vantage point of nothingness, God spoke everything into existence that didn't exist before. The universe and everything in it. As the Bible says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing that is hidden from the sun's heat. Now let's turn back to the beginning and understand the story that God is telling. That's what I want you to do. If, if I have a mission as a pastor, as a Christian preacher, is to show the people of God how the Bible fits together. How it's not just a bunch of grumbled stories about this hero and that hero. And, you know, you, we tuck our kids in bed at night with this story. And Daniel did this there. And David killed Gil- All of those things are important. But I want to show you right from the very beginning that this book, as I have in my hand, is bound on one cover in one binding It all fits together to give us the true story of how God intended with purpose to bring about his plan to cover the earth with his knowledge. And so, let's read the text together. Let's begin in Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to read Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going to go all the way through chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, and I'm just realizing today that this is the first time that we have read this together as a church. Let's enjoy one of the most significant passages the world has ever heard. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, day one. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, day two. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. 
and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, day three. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light, greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God said, Let them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate light from the darkness and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning day four and God said let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning. Day five. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seeds in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast on the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the ground, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for you. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning. Day six. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, for there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, 
watering the face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. And the gold of the land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens had brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, And we're not ashamed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Help me now in the power of your spirit to declare it with excellence to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing that I want us to learn together very quickly is that in creating, God chose to make himself known. In creating, God chose to make himself known. The picture that we just read in Genesis is one of the most significant passages that the world has ever seen. It's stunning. Can you just imagine all the colors that must have burst onto the scene out of the backdrop of nothingness? The Bible's written in such detail, you can almost taste the salty air and feel the breeze as God forms the waters and then separates it all. This is a masterpiece from the Master. But it's in creating, listen, that God chose to make himself known. If God had not chose to make himself known, we would not, or could we, know him. But he has done so, and the first thing that we see him doing is bringing life from emptiness. The first thing that we see him doing is bringing something from nothing. God desires to be known, otherwise he would not have created. Otherwise he would not have disclosed himself to us. 
Now, this passage has been used and abused, and the idea behind this passage is something that, that we have to be very clear about today. There's a danger that we must avoid when we think about God in these terms. It's a subtle danger that I want to do my diligence as your pastor to guard you away from. Listen, God has made himself known in a certain way by creation, not through creation. The heavens reveal the glory of God. The heavens are not the glory of God. We look to creation, and we should have the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 19, as well as the attitude of Abraham Lincoln, who said, I cannot conceive how a man can look up into the heavens and say there is no God. That's the kind of attitude we have. We don't look at the sunset and say we've seen God. God is not creation. God is Lord of creation. God transcends creation, or that is, he stands as entirely other than creation. God is something different than everything that he has created. In creating, listen to me closely, listen, this is important. In creating, God transcended his own transcendence. You say, what does that mean? God transcended his own transcendence and he has condescended to make himself known to us. He has chosen to overcome the vast distance between himself and us and he created in an amazing way so that we, his creatures, can be the beneficiaries, the benefactors of his work. Now let me ask you a question. What is the greatest benefit that you and I can have from creation? Is it air in our lungs? I'd say that's pretty important, isn't it? Aren't you thankful for being able to breathe? What about the heat on your skin? Some of you, I know, you hate the cold weather. That's pretty good. Aren't you glad that you can walk out and have, or you can go home and have this, this, the sun coming down and, and you feel the heat on your skin? And I want to say those things are important. But there's something that's more important. The greatest benefit that we gain from all of his works, listen to me, is being able to relate to the God who has created things that are seen and unseen. That's more important than you breathing, friend. That's more important than you being comfortable. You being able to have a relationship with God. If he had not made himself known, we could not know him. But he has made himself known in an amazing way, in an astounding way. Look ahead to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. The second thing that I want us to learn is not only has God created and so revealed himself, the second thing that I want us to learn is that God has chosen to receive worship. Look at chapter 1 and verse 26. Out of all of God's creative acts, you just look at it in your Bible. Just look. Look at the space that day one receives. Look at the space that day two receives. Look at day three. Look at day four. Then flip my Bible. I have to flip the page. By the time I get to the fifth day, then I skip ahead to the, the sixth day. Look at the contrast between chapter 1 and uh, 16, for example, where God says that he created the stars. And then look at the contrast between chapter 1 and verse 26. 
where this whole section, we have this much text in our Bible that tells us about God creating humanity. Though the beautiful blue balls of gas that are burning millions and millions of miles away in the Bible are almost as an afterthought. I love that. Look at it in verse 16. Oh yeah, and the stars. Did you know that when you look at a star, you're looking into the past? Did you know that? Stars are so far away and so bright that by the time the light reaches your eye, the star that you see may not even be there anymore. Did you know that? Light travels at a speed of 186,282 miles per hour. In country terms, that's moving out, right? That's quick. The closest star is the sun. And listen, the sun is 92.96 million miles from Earth. You know what that means? Put it together. Some of you have already done the math. But what that means is it takes light eight minutes and 20 seconds to reach Earth from the sun, moving at a rate of 186,282 miles an hour. Eight minutes and 20 seconds. The light that you see that was dispensed eight minutes and 20 seconds ago, the light that we're looking at right now is light that was dispensed eight minutes ago. The sun could burn out and we wouldn't know it until eight minutes later. Now, some people you know and some people I know, they spend more time looking at the stars and trying to figure out their life according to the stars and patterns that they see in nature than to look at Scripture. But I love the way the Bible speaks about Scripture, it, uh, the stars. It says that the stars are almost an afterthought. It's like an oh yeah moment. He puts it in, and the stars also. But the crown of God's creation is humanity. Remember, God didn't have to create God chose to create. And what did he create? He created you. He created me. He created us more than any other creature with an amazing purpose. He created us to carry out his will on the earth. He created us to be his vice regents on the earth. We are the vice regents of the king, his ambassadors who carry out his purpose on the earth as his servant. He even prepared a special place for us. Look in chapter 2. God planted a garden. And in that garden, he put mankind to perform a task. To extend that garden over the whole of creation. Look at our task in chapter 2 and verse 15. Look at this. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Humanity's task, according to chapter 2 and verse 15 is to work and keep. And the next verse tells us that God expects us to obey. Look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying. So we're here to work, to keep, and to obey. But I want to do a little Hebrew this morning. Are you up for a little Hebrew? Let's do a little Hebrew. If we look at the original, we wouldn't see the word it anywhere. Look at verse 15. The Lord God commanded the man, put him in the Garden of Eden, to work it and keep it. If we were to look in the original, we wouldn't see the word it anywhere. What else could it refer to? Now, the English translators have put the word it there to say that it refers to the garden. But there's a man, John Selhammer, who was a 
former Hebrew and Old Testament scholar who just died, uh, I think, this past year. He was at my alma mater, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He argues convincingly that the words work and keep are better translated worship and obey. Now let's read it that way. The Lord God took the man, in verse 15, in the Garden of Eden to worship and obey. The God of the universe, who could have done whatever he wanted, the God of the universe who had his choice of any number of possibilities, has chosen to receive worship and adoration from you and me. Animals and plants do things by instinct. They do things by second nature. It's nice to think that the birds are singing to the Lord, and maybe they are. They're not doing it on purpose. But you and I, we do things with purpose. And we worship God supernaturally through a second birth. Not second nature, but a second birth. You and I were created to worship. We are created to serve as the priest of God, to offer uh, our praise to Him. Listen, God doesn't need our worship. Don't think that you're doing God a favor by living a life of worship. You're just fulfilling a purpose in which you were created, that's all. By necessity of who He is and who we are, we worship Him, and then He receives our worship. And amazingly, this is the part that I can't get over He doesn't just receive our worship. God delights in our worship of Him. Listen, the Bible says in Psalm 22, you are holy. Speaking of the Lord. This is the part that gets me. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. That verse literally reads where it says enthroned on. The the Hebrew there literally reads He dwells in the praise of Israel. The King James says he inhabits the praise of his people. The third thing that I want to teach you this morning, God has chosen to dwell with man. In creating, God chose to make himself known. God has chosen to receive worship. That's what creation is. It's the stage which God has designed to look upon and receive worship. And not only has he just done things from a distance to look on, he has entered the narrative himself. He has come and made his dwelling place with man. Look at chapter 3. I know we didn't read chapter 3, but I want us to dip into chapter 3 for just a moment. We'll be there a little more later, but for more, I want us to look at one phrase together in verse 8. Look at this. Chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. What on earth must it have been like to sense the presence of the Lord in this way? What did the sound of him walking sound like? Again, this is one of those passages that's veiled in mystery, but we can learn something. First, I think we can learn that like the creation of the stars, uh, as an afterthought, God manifesting himself in this way to the first couple is just taken for granted with no explanation. Second, this must be an ongoing occasion because they immediately recognize this occurrence. It's not like something new is happening. They hear him walking, God's coming, then they go hide. They knew it. 
But even after we look at the clues, we're still pretty clueless about what happened. But what does God want us to learn from this? I believe, listen carefully, that we can confidently say from this one verse that God has chosen to dwell amongst men. This word here, walk, is later used for God's presence in the tabernacle, which is a foreshadowing of the temple. And this phrase pops up again and again in the Bible to assure us that God has made his dwelling amongst his people. Listen, listen to Leviticus 26. I want to show you this. God says to his people, if you walk, listen, listen, to, the, listen to the language of the Bible, if you walk in my statutes and observe what I command you. Remember, what's he saying? Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16, the Lord commanded the man. So this is Genesis language in Leviticus chapter 26. If you do this, then I will give your rains in their seasons. The land shall yield its increase. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. What, what kind of trees are mentioned in the, in the Garden of Eden? Fruit trees. This is Genesis language. Your threshing floor shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. There's Genesis 2, land, God preparing a garden. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid, and I will remove harmful beast from the land. The sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you. That's Genesis language, and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and shall clear out the old and make way for the new. Listen to what's next. I will make my dwelling amongst you. And my soul shall not abhor you. Now listen to the next part. I will walk amongst you. And I will be your God. And you'll be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bars of your yoke and I have made you walk erect instead of shivering on the ground. You see, this is the point that I'm trying to tell you. God choosing to do everything that he's done, create, receive worship, and then to make our dwelling, his dwelling amongst us, this is of great advantage to us. Everything that we've just read from Genesis, it should elicit praise from your heart. That should overflow to your lips. It should leave us wanting to live a way characterized by Psalm 8 where the psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. And then we should say this, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, 
the moon and the stars that you've set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all the sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the pass of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Can we say that last phrase together? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And listen, listen, this is the good news. And the praise for us, look at this, look at my Bible. This is Genesis, right? Look at your own Bible. This is Genesis. Look at this. You know what that is? You know what you're hearing? The unfolding of God's story for you, for me. So that we would learn when we see Jesus coming to the temple. We're going to be like Anna and Simeon who meet him that day in the temple and we say, my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. You see, everything that we learn about creation and here I am, I'm flying at a speed of 185,282 miles an hour. I'm going a speed of light this morning. We went all the way from, we're going fast. There's just so much that I want to say, but just a, a, we're flying at 90,000 feet. Just to give you this bird's eye view of how the Bible all fits together. And we know that the praise for us doesn't stop at creation and it doesn't stop at the temple. We know there's more to the story. God's going to make his dwelling amongst man not in a something that can be torn down. Remember, the temple's gone. Jesus looked at the temple and he said, you tear this temple down and in three days I'll raise it up. That temple that Jesus looked at and said that up was destroyed in 70 A.D. And guess what? I've been to Jerusalem. There's nothing left except a bunch of rubble. Jesus wasn't speaking about that temple, was he? He was speaking about his body. God has chose to make his dwelling amongst man in a permanent and definitive way. The word coming to us as we are so that he could make us as he is. John says it this way. John chapter 1 and verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The way that God chose to make himself known through Christ was through a cradle, a cross, and then a crown. Why? For you. Not for himself. He doesn't need anything. He did it just for you. All so that you and I could be the beneficiaries of his love. Now, I'm through this morning, but I just wonder, I wonder, do you know the God who has made himself known? Listen, the only way for you to know him is not for you to have some concocted idea about him. That's how cults start. That's how false religions start. 
The only way for you to know God is through the way that he has made himself known. The only way for you to know God is for you to know Jesus, his son, who is the revelation of God, the image, the Bible says, of the invisible God. And if you know him, if you know him, truly know him, then you have this attitude of Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? Who am I that you are mindful of me? Do you have that attitude honestly this morning? Or do you live in the opposite way? You're so consumed with self that you pay no attention to God. Listen to your pastor. One way leads you wandering. You live this life full of awe-struck worship. The other way leaves you wandering. The other with an A instead of an O leaves you lost. God has made himself known. The question that you have to answer before God is do I know him? Father, we love you. We thank you so much for making yourself known to us in sending the Son. Pray that you would take this message, seal it to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We pray God will use this message for his glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at oxfordbaptistchurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.